Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and today's episode is number 47, Using Regenerative Agriculture Concepts for Wildlife. It's a time of year that every habitat manager lives for, spring. I'm one of those habitat managers now. And if you're like me, you spend all winter thinking about what you need to do in 2020 as part of your habitat plan. Many of you may be planning to plant food plots, and if you are, I have a guest who will be talking about a little bit of a different approach to food plotting. That's a lie. It's not a little bit of a different approach. It's a 180 degree different approach. Today's guest is Jason Snavely of Drop Time Consulting, Drop Time Seed Company, and the Drop Time Podcast. This guy knows his stuff. Jason fills us in on what regenerative agriculture can offer habitat managers, how we can get started, and the importance of soil health. I want to give you all a quick warning, and that's that this is a long episode for us. But the information makes it very, very well worth it. Honestly, Jason and I are just scratching the surface of this topic. So let's not not dilly-dally. Let's get right in there, and let's start talking with Jason. On the line with us now is Jason Jason Snavely. Thanks for joining me, Jason. Hey, Jason. Good to be with you. So uh, I'm on a run now. I've uh, interviewed a couple PA boys in a row, and you're a Pennsylvania boy right now from Central PA, if I'm correct, right? Yes, sir. East, sort of East Central, Northeast in that region. All right. And because of this uh coronavirus and the whole stay-at-home order you're actually in florida right now <laughs> you're gonna wrap me out already huh i am yeah. i am i'm gonna i'm gonna throw your vacation under the bus a little bit <laughs> i've been trying not to rub that in but yeah we you know we have a, a home in florida and when of course when the kids were freed we uh loaded up the pickup and i blew straight through down here you know i'm a i'm a huge believer in in nature, connecting with nature and being outside. And anytime, you know, when I went through Lyme disease um, and, and some co-infections, anytime health is a concern, I firmly believe in the power of just getting outside, exercising. I mean, we, we can be so much more active down here. And of course, the state is open uh, more so than the northeastern states. So yeah, I've been here for going on six weeks and uh, my hair is long and shaggy and faded, and uh, I don't believe I've worn a shirt other than to go to Walmart, uh, but a couple times. So, swim trunks and <laughs> some some a lot of podcasts and reading, and of course, plenty of work to be done. Yeah, I'm sure that the weather is much nicer down there as it is uh, about 45 degrees and raining right now in Western Ugh. Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, so we're. We, myself, and, and the people uh, helping me out with uh, Conserve the Wild and my friends, we're all just patiently waiting for 
turkey season to start which by the time this by the time everyone's listening turkey season will be in full swing but we are we are patiently waiting right now and i'm hoping that this rain ends uh before turkey season because for me there's nothing worse than sitting in the rain waiting for a turkey especially if you're not hearing those gobbles yeah you know that the the season back home is drawing it's killing me i want to get back um but it's it's tough when i get pictures and and calls and reports that it's dreary and rainy that I don't think it's been cloudy more than a half of a day down here. So, but having said that, I've got a lot of work to do on the farm and I need to get, need to get back pretty soon. And of course my consulting was put on hold due to many of the travel bans. So that has um, sort of been painful, but uh, hopefully that'll get back, back in swing here soon. Well, speaking of, getting some work done on the farm uh we at our cabin our family cabin are trying to get you know get started with a lot of work and one of the things that we're going to try this year uh and really it's a multi-year process i I have a feeling as we start talking about is sort of this idea of regenerative agriculture so can you just give a give the listeners just as i know there's a lot that goes into it but can you give everyone (laughs) just a, a quick snippet of what is regenerative agriculture? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, you know, thanks, thanks for having me. And uh, you know, regenerative agriculture is a is a, a fairly big buzzword right now, and 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 for good reason. I believe it's it's will prove to be the right side of history. Um, I do, you know, firmly believe that we should really sort of take a couple steps back and it can be overwhelming as, as you know, you've probably heard, you mentioned hearing me on some other podcasts and some articles I've written. There's a lot to it. It's, it's quite intensive and it's great. I, I consider it more of a paradigm shift and a, a mental process than a physical process, right? So you have to almost ask yourself why um, before you get into the how. And, you know, I, I like to use the term biomimicry because you know, anytime you're gonna, you're going to the property or the camp, and it, it doesn't matter what tools or implements you're using. I don't care if you're using the small tools, like most of us started with. Many of us are still using, or the big, you know, um, sexy drills and, and roller crimpers and the, and the tractors. It, it all goes back to the same principles and thought process of biomimicry. So, you know, obviously, we're learning many of these principles from the agricultural world but we really need to step back and realize that the principles that we're employing now the management practices we're employing now in the food plots or in the wildlife ag are strictly copied from nature and anytime we head out to to do anything on the farm i think before we jump off the four-wheeler or out of the pickup we need to ask ourselves, am I mimicking nature or am I causing further disruption and dysfunction to the ecosystem? So I know that's vague, but I think, you know, I, I believe wholeheartedly in teaching a man to fish, not giving him a fish. So in order to do that, you have to be able to independently step outside the box and comfortably question everything you've ever thought to be the norm and that's really hard for a lot of people and until you can do that and get beyond that I don't think you can 
employ a lot of these practices. <laughs> I mean, there's some things that I have that I know as a biologist make 110% um, sense, but actually physically doing some of them in the past has been very difficult. And then once you learn to, to do that and you learn to observe, you observe the reaction and the response from nature. And it's, it's pretty overwhelming to be honest with you. So, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of principles and practices that, that we can talk about. Um, but I think that the, the mind shift getting in the proper mindset is, is number one. Yeah, I can attest to that mindset. Uh, you know, I've been exposed to the idea of regenerative agriculture. So, um, and the way it's been explained to me by people like yourself, uh, not specifically to me, just listening and, and reading up on it, it, it makes sense. When I try to relay these ideas to my grandfather, who's in his 80s, that grew up hmm. on a farm, uh, farmed on a small scale his entire life and doing it a very specific way he can't grasp the concept of using this process as opposed to the more old school method of you know disking and tilling and sure uh, using sure. the herbicides and the fertilizers and everything like that um so i completely understand where you're coming from when you say it's a mindset shift so my big question for you to answer for everyone else is how does the process work? What is, what is the idea behind it? Because conventional agriculture is like we said, disking, tilling, planting, mm -hmm. using the herbicides, using fertilizer. How is regenerative agriculture different? Well, I think first and foremost, um, you know, before I'll get into the principles, which I think many people have heard, but they're important. To, to lay them out. And there are six, there were originally five, but I think the, the addition of the sixth, which I think is the most important, but I'll save it for last. Um, but the first, first and foremost is a lot of people, you know, when we started this, we, we got some, some uh, pretty good pressure on social media um, because, you know, folks were, were saying, wow, this organic stuff doesn't work in food plots. And, it, you know, regenerative practices are not equivalent to organic. Organic is actually quite destructive or has been historically. Uh, many of the, the organic leaders like the Rodale Institute are in fact changing into more of a regenerative um, style. But so, so I think that the principles, and I'll go through them rather, rather quickly, certainly not minimizing the value of each one, but you know, first and foremost, um, I try not to get on social media, but I, I like to know what the average food plotter is thinking empathize with them and sort of follow along with their struggles. So as a result, I am on some, some food plotting, um, uh, you know, in some groups and stuff like that on social media. And I, I made a comment this morning, you know, soil armor, I believe number one is soil armor. And I, and I believe soil armor is perhaps one of the most important, you know, when you think about nature, um, unless there's been some sort of natural disturbance, you don't see nature's soil revealed to the naked eye, typically. Uh, if you do, it's, it's typically man-made or a short-term, um, you know, natural phenomenon at some point. So just like when you cut your arm, uh, my daughter fell yesterday riding her bike, and when you, when you skin yourself, 
it scabs over. And that's because with an open wound, obviously, all sorts of things can set in and infect your body, infection, etc. So, so nature, uh, you know, scabs itself over, so to speak. And the first, you know, the ambulance workers, the first line of defense against scabbing, whether it's plowing, disking, or you dig in a hole or run off from a field creating a trench is to throw plants that are very aggressive, uh, you know, aggressive in nature. And we call them weeds. And I think that's something I sent you a list of things. I wanted to sort of touch on weeds a little bit more. Um, so, you know, first of all, the soil armor, if, if you can see your soil, it, it's a problem, right? So when I started this, that's what bothered me most. Before I heard about any of this regen stuff, I, I, I drove my bad boy buggy out into my field late, late, late winter one year in Pennsylvania and just looked at the field and I thought to myself, from a, you know, I've learned to observe and I thought from a biology standpoint, this doesn't seem right. I'm learning, I've learned for, you know, 12 years from the largest farmer in my county who is my neighbor, produces tremendous yields. Um, but, but this just doesn't feel right. And, and the reason was I could see the soil and there was no soil armor. So, you know, that, that leads us right into the second principle, which is soil disturbance. And, and disturbance can come in a physical nature, like plowing, disking, uh, ripping, whatever. Uh, but it can also come from a, a chemical disturbance. And of course, everybody knows where I'm going with that one. Um, and then, you know, third is really the one that we've attacked full throttle in the food plotting world, and that's diversity, species complementariness, and putting mixes, uh, well thought out mixes in the ground. Um, so so I, maybe we can hit on that a little bit more. That, that, that one to me has been very, very important in watching clients from Southern Alabama to Michigan, uh, up into, you know, even into Canada, uh, the diversity is absolutely amazing. You know, we, we always say that nature is self-regulating, self-organizing, and self-healing. And it, it blows my mind. We can go out and disturb nature, uh, but instantly put diversity back in the ground. And the response from the biology and the system is is nothing short of miraculous. And then, of course, you know, the fourth principle um, is equally important is maintaining living roots. And here's another one that we've failed miserably at, right? Uh, you know, we'll go out and, and we'll plant, unless you're planting a monoculture clover plot, which uh, too much of, of, a mon of that, too much of a good thing is also a bad thing. But, you know, when we look at the fact that, including myself, when I rolled out into that field of mine where the rocks, I mean, they, they were boulders as, as big as my head, um, you know, we'll plant a, a brassica dominant, and this is important. I think a very important take home that we should talk, you know, to a little bit deeper at some point is these brassica dominant um, food plot products, which I've been guilty of of recommending and selling, not in the last three years, um, but you know, they they are are non mycorrhizal. They're they do not promote biology. In fact, they they completely decrease the biological indicators and the health of the system. We are practically letting our soils go most of the year from, from the time we spray them and let them sit idle uh, to the winter when, you know, when these dominant brassicas are, are, you know, allowing the soil to be, to be naked and starving. 
but we don't have a living root in the system. And, you know, we all talk about soil organic matter. The fact is the majority, the overwhelming majority of soil organic matter increase comes from having living roots in the soil. And we have failed at that um, quite measurably. And then the fifth one, um, of course, you know, animal integration. And, you know, I know a lot of folks have, have heard about the, the grazers and the ag, the ranchers, including, um, you know, adaptive management strategy, adaptive grazing, multi-paddock, um, you know, where they're constantly moving animals that sort of simulates the bison. Um, you know, I've heard buff buffalo mentioned that it's not buffalo. They're the bison bison is the American bison. And, it, you know, those animals were in, in extremely high densities, moved across the landscape, you know, hit it quickly, uh, it, you know, they would consume perhaps 50% or even less of a particular area and they would move on. Why would they move on? Well, it doesn't make much sense for a prey species to, to remain in one spot uh, for a long period of time. So, so it was natural for them to hit it hard, high stock density, and then, and then move on. And the last one that, that really has been added um, in, in the last couple of years, which really shouldn't be number one, because it, it sort of plays into what we're doing here and how we've evolved and, and adapted regenerative wildlife agriculture. And that is context. You know, I think just, just like I was talking in, in the beginning about the mindset, the paradigm shift, you really have to sit back and, and absorb what others are learning and these major principles and then apply it to your context. And by that, you know, um, it could mean for me, it was animal integration. I know I would say to, to guys like Gabe Brown and, and Alan Williams, you know, guys, I, I'll never be able to accomplish what I want to accomplish without large herbivores on the ground, right? I mean, I've got a 160, 180, 220 pound uh, white-tailed deer and some wild turkeys. And sure, there's animal, there's wildlife integrated, but geez, I'll never experience those exponential increases in soil health in my time period. And that, that, that was simply not true. So, you know, context, you know, another example of context, I know a lot of folks will see me using maybe a 60 or 80 horsepower tractor with a roller crimper and a drill. And they'll say, well, geez, I, you know, I, I can't afford a, a $25,000 drill and a uh, $40,000, $50,000 tractor and a $4,000 roller crimper. And that's fine that, you know, there are, there are guys and gals all across the country who are using their heads to adapt the principles to the tools they have and, and food plots look phenomenal. Um, now, again, I've been quoted and, and I firmly still believe in this, that sometimes when you come to the job site, you've got to bring the tool belt with the hammer and the screwdriver and you, you've got to have a certain number of tools when you come to the job or you're kidding yourself. Um, but having said that nature has done it <laughs> for an awful long time. You know, we certainly don't, you know, don't need all of these fancy tools and technology. Now having said that the roller crimper, I think um, on a return on investment dollar for dollar has been between that and the, and the drill has been, incredible for what we're attempting to accomplish so trying to wrap geez trying to put regenerative wildlife ag or regen uh, ecology 
in a couple of even a 10 minute uh, monologue is is certainly overwhelming but i think when you when you go back to the, the idea of biomimicry food plotting in nature's image and following those principles and questioning really questioning are we doing the right thing i think that that starts you on the journey and yeah you mentioned um it's i'm here to tell you this is a journey it's just like deer management of uh, with any goal and objective it's it's an adaptive management strategy we learned so i've made so many mistakes um just had a client before i hopped on from from georgia sent me a text you know he asked <laughs> he forgot apparently that he had planted some reload in one of his fields and he double planted it and i i told him i said don't be discouraged when i've done that in the past it came out amazing and it gave me a, a massive amount of residue to crimp. And he sent me a picture. And sure enough, his mistake caused him to think, you know what, maybe I should bump these, my, my planting rate up for, you know, for whatever reason. So didn't mean to go on too long there, Jason, but uh, it's certainly a, a paradigm shift that uh, takes a little bit of time to just sort of let it run its course. Yeah, no, as people get introduced to this concept and start looking into it on their own, uh, there's just so much that goes into it. And it, like you said, it's hard to pare it down to just, you know, an hour podcast episode, let alone try to put the principles out, lay the principles out there in 10 minutes. So there's obviously a whole lot to unpack there. And the first thing that I want to touch on is what you mentioned a little bit about having too much of a good thing is a bad thing and mm -hmm. the look of a food plot. We see these mm -hmm. pictures on social media. You, you try to stay off social media. I try to get on only to do brief interactions and, and do what I need to do for, you know, the nonprofit that we're starting uh, because you can just go down a crazy rabbit hole. But when you, when you scroll through pictures that you see on Instagram, things like that of, food plots the pictures that people are posting are these beautifully manicured fields mm -hmm. of whatever it is that they planted to to draw deer and turkey and, and wildlife in mm -hmm. when it comes to regenerative ag i mean what's the look of the food plot what at what point do we should we realize hey don't be discouraged on on what it looks like sure well hey listen i think that is a <laughs> that's a personal decision um i you know i too you know we we used to grow um you know i, I can remember six foot tall forage soybeans eagle forage soybeans that you know we had manure heavily fertilized um <laughs> they, these people we were so excited to have guests and clients come to the farm and have them stand six feet away in the in the plot and have a conversation when they couldn't see us um that, that was great so I think, you know, I had a client call them dirty plots. I wish I could own that, that um, terminology, but he called them, he said, Hey, I'm really starting to like my dirty plots and the, the sheer number of, of deer it's, you know, they're, they're attracting. I, I suppose that's, you know, until you really get into accepting a different threshold of, I'll use the word, I hate the word weeds, but I'll use it because let's face it. That's what we call them. Um, you know, once you start to accept that and give it some time, I've had clients who just, you know, when, when it's really neat to be hired by a client, they're committing to 
to obviously if they're paying you they're committing to listening to you and sometimes that's very difficult if you've ever hired someone to do something in your home or a project you know obviously you have to extend that to them and a lot of these clients just looked at me and shook their heads and said yeah, there's no way you can do this without you know the, the pesticides the herbicides the insecticides the fungicides there's just no way you can get away from from the fertilizers the man-made synthetics and the neat thing for me of course i can't share all this with everybody but the neat thing for me is everybody from business owners to professional athletes to to linemen with the power company to school teachers are sending me pictures and emails and text messages saying this is incredible this is not a food plot i would share <laughs> with most people or on social media but the sheer number of, of, of diverse animals that we're attracting is is un, unbelievable and and these are guys and girls who initially said this will never work uh, you know i'm going to go along with it because obviously i've hired you to help me so i i think again that's sort of a personal um uh that's a paradigm shift and and, and something personally that you have to get over but uh yeah they, they certainly look different i agree with you i look at um you know food plots now on social media and i i, I thank uh god that i was able to and nature for for showing me how to see things differently as a biologist and I, you know I've, I've i've had some people say man you are you are fully in this and i think as a biologist it has been so easy you know you mentioned your your 80 year old grandfather hey listen they they worked with with what they had to work with right and um it's hard changing your your opinions and, and your outlook on things in life so um yeah you know getting back to uh, you know a lot of people are looking for practical you know some of this philosophical stuff is great you know sitting around a campfire and smoking a cigar but what are some of the real world practical um action steps that we can take you know let's take for instance if you don't mind hopefully i'm not rambling on you here no keep going i like this train of thought <laughs> Let, let's let's take the the monoculture uh, clover plot, right? So, obviously, when you look at nature, you see tremendous diversity. When you look at a food, most food plots, uh, you see monoculture and, and and what I call minimum or minimal culture. You know, clover chicory or clover and oats. You know, as a nurse crop or something like that. It's just not um, hitting this quorum sensing, which is a really neat. Uh, process that goes on in nature that hopefully we will touch on but you know the, the clover um let, let me back up if you strip away um, everything from nature and you look at plants you know 90 97 or 98 percent of a plant um after you take away the water is free right it's carbon it's nitrogen it's it's you know things from the atmosphere things from from the soil ecology so a clover plot is, is, you know, a leguminous plant like clover is absolutely amazing and instrumental in soil health regeneration. So is uh, the center on a football team. You know, I've, I've sort of, I like football and I'll use the analogy um, oftentimes because, you know, there's 11 guys out there, obviously a pile of coaches and assistants, but 
you know, <laughs> we're watching the draft last night, last night, and everybody wants to see, you know, who takes the quarterback. And then you kind of go get a snack when they're, when, you know, when the center's recruited, right, or drafted. So to me, Clover's, Clover is kind of like the center. It's key. Without the snap, there's no play, right? If you fumble the snap or the nose guard intimidates you, forget it. So Clover is kind of like the front, you know, the, the, the front line, if you will. But too much clover pumping, too much nitrogen into the soil is a problem. And you get this, this situation where your carbon-nitrogen ratio is way out of ba balance. So let me back up on that. So there's, there's a carbon-nitrogen ratio that's extremely important. And in nature, if you and I were to die or the deer carcass you throw out there or whatever, you know, everything sort of goes back to this roughly 1 to 11. I've heard different numbers and, you know, roughly 1 to 11. That's carbon to nitrogen. So in a monoculture clover plot, you're pumping so much nitrogen into that soil, which is a good thing in, in most scenarios. But the soil is, is battling saying, listen, we've got to get more carbon into the system and obviously everybody can research carbon carbon is so important um, i mentioned this morning in a in a, a social media post uh, or a response i should should say for for the since we don't have time here uh the, the video i tell everyone to watch is is carbonomics by keith burns keith um has worked with me and some others in developing the blends uh for the drop time seed company the reload blends and he's just he's an he's just an absolute awesome thought leader and his carbonomics video on youtube is amazing but so so to get more carbon in the system because it's out of, out of balance the system says well listen we need to get some more some more grasses or grass likes in this system right we need different functional groups we call them i don't i don't believe anymore in chasing the the <laughs> the superior clover or you know the clover with the best genetics to be winter hardy i'm more interested in making sure we maintain a diverse plantscape from different plant families and different functional groups so you know this clover battle has cracked me up for so many years now since the 80s when some of the food plot companies argued about who had the best clover and you know what when the soil says okay we need to throw some grasses because there's way too much nitrogen in the system. So the soil does that. But what do we do when the grasses pop up in our clover? We spray them and we kill them. So have we treated a symptom or have we, have we sat back and thought, what is the underlying cause of this situation? If we sat back and thought about the underlying cause, which we have done with our clients, we've been doing this for years, where we'll take uh, late winter, and get a jump on those clover plots by preferably drilling, or you could broadcast cool season cereal grains. I like, I like triticalium barley for that application right into that plot. So this is a system of biomimicry and really reading nature and thinking like nature. So you sit back and you go, okay, if I wanna get rid of these caustic chemicals, right, the grass specifics, um, the dims, clathodims, oxidim, whatever your choice, your weapon is, I better give the soil what it wants. And the sort of the, the cool part of this is not only are you giving the soil what it wants and the, and the microbial populations in the soil what it wants, 
but you're giving the turkeys and the deer and, and the rest of the wildlife what it wants. So, you know, we started initially frost seeding um, some of those cooler season uh, cereal grains, which are grass technically, into those plots and filled in those skips and voids that you had carried over from the previous years, right? Everybody has these sections in their clover plots where, you know, the weeds came in and then you sprayed it and, you know, you kind of stopped there, right? You thought, well, um, I'm done, right? This, this clover is supposed to be highly stoloniferous. It's supposed to spread like, like weeds. It'll, it'll jump into those void areas and take care of everything. Well, if that were the case, why are we still spraying clover plots every year? Hell, I, I can recall spraying some clover plots multiple times <laughs> in one year. So, um, you know, for me, one of the first things I do on the farm is I hook my drill up and geez, sometimes it could be in a little bit of snow um, and it's usually pretty darn chilly out and I'm drilling in trit or triticale and uh, barley into my, well, I don't have monoculture plots anymore, but those clients who really insist on having a straight clover plot, uh, that's one of the first steps that we take to add more diversity to, to those monoculture stands. So I'll just wrap that, um, that blurb up there with, uh, I just want to drive home again, that mixes are 110% more efficient at utilizing water and cycling nutrients than a monoculture stand is, you know, and I, and it's funny, I've always been told by the farmers and some of the folks in the, in the food plotting industry still argue and I'll see them post that, you know, if you plant um, multiple species, there's competition in these, uh, you know, amongst these species. That's just, that, that's simply not true. Uh, there, there's competition within the monoculture but not only is there no competition in a diverse cocktail or a biological primer like the Reload series, but those species work together in a complementary way. Again, going back to that football team, I hate to hate to go to that, but uh, there are there are multiple plant types, extreme diversity that equates to a diverse root system. And, you know, nobody wants to get into what's beneath their boots, but I'm here to tell you, when you introduce a diverse root system constantly living in the soil, you end up with this diverse microbial population that in turn works with these plants. It's happened forever, way before we started mucking with it. And that's when you get away from the expensive spoon-fed man-made synthetic fertilizers because guess what? Nature's got this, right? Nature can figure this out without us manufacturing some, uh, you know, salt-loaded synthetic fertilizer. <laughs> there are two points that I, that I want to make of what you just said that resonate with me. And one is, you know, as someone who's managing to benefit wildlife, we want to make the wildlife as healthy as possible. And mm. you really have to look at that bottom tier level, which like you said, a lot of people are sort of stopping at the top of that soil level. Uh, but really it's below that in the soil. So if the soil is, the healthiest it can be it's going to create plants that are the healthiest they can be which in turn 
moves to the wildlife and so on. That that's how that's, right. that's how nature works. Uh, the other point is that the idea of nature just naturally filling in those bare spots. Nature doesn't like to see bare ground. So if you spray those quote unquote weeds and kill them, it's going to fill it in with something else. And it's going to fill in with whatever it needs uh, mm -hmm. to fill that spot. So if you're able to fill those spots in with something that benefits the soil um, and when we benefit the soil or benefit other plants, like, with that monoculture you mentioned you know their clovers are complete competing with clovers over the same nutrients whereas sure. if we're sure. planting that mix they're not competing over the same amounts of the same nutrients they're taking what they need to grow so there's less competition between those different plants right and i think you know man you just hit a lot of very good very good points i think this is the reason you see a lot of biologists and ecologists um of of all disciplines, whether they study insects, um, you know, or birds. Uh, I think biologists and ecologists get this because, um, you know, it all starts with the soil microbes. So when, when I go to employ some sort of management strategy, I'm asking myself, how can I feed those microbes? You, you noted that the soil feeds the plants, that, that, and that's true. I would argue that between the sun H2O and that, that soiled ecosystem, which is absolutely robust and incredible, those things drive everything in life. So I look, you know, how do I feed the soil microbes is, is the way that I look at it now. I used to look at feeding the plant so the plant would feed the deer. And I could remember some, some of my professors saying the plant is nothing more than a nutrient transfer. Uh, physicality or agent that takes the nutrients from the soil and then obviously the deer eats it. Well, that, that sort of sounds simplistic and, and perhaps obvious, but there's so much more going on than that. And when we look at feeding the biology of the soil, I'm here to tell you that that's like, you know, I think of, of people who own factories uh, or, or a business with maybe a hundred employees, right? If you go in there and you destroy you know, you fire half of them, you destroy the morale of, of perhaps, you know, uh, another 20. You, you can't operate it at full potential with, you know, the, the remaining employees. And that's what we've done with the biology in the soil. We've destroyed it through tillage, through chemical, you know, applications, um, through planting things that we think are better for one species. It just, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, we need to learn how nature farms. That's really what we need to learn. You know, a lot of this goes back to, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, when I went through my Lyme disease um, debacle, I, I studied, you know, gut health and, and the microbiome and, and human health and really what's, what's good for me and what's not. And what we're starting to find in the, the regenerative ag world is that where, where folks have employed these strategies, they're creating more nutrient-dense plants. And, and I, you know, I, I know my peer-reviewed science people and reduction, reductionist folks who take that approach 
ask for for data where are the data to prove that well you know what there's really not data to prove a whole lot of things in life and the data you find you can find just as much to contradict it so there will be a time and i cannot wait for this situation this is what i ultimately ask all of the food plotters if an instrument came out tomorrow right we're good at, at creating um, gadgets little instruments that do pretty cool things if one came out tomorrow that allowed you to either stick it in your food plot or you know maybe take one of your plants let's say chicory stick it in this instrument and it gives you a, a, a density of nutrients in that plant or, or phytonutrients plant secondary compounds and you get this ultimate score which is a quality of 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 the nutritional value in that plant and then you could go up the road to maybe the farmer or one of your buddy's food plots. If an instrument came out like that, are you comfortable that, that your plots are really doing what we think they're doing, which is ultimately grow bigger antlers, increase lactation rates and recruitment rates and the whole nine yards? I am looking forward to that day. And, you know, there's a group of folks in the human nutrition world who are working on calibrating the first 500 were sent out and they're calibrating that so now the soccer I always like to pick on the soccer moms um, or my wife who's not a soccer mom she's a football mom but if she were to go to the grocery store and look at the tomatoes and stick this little instrument on farmer John's tomatoes and then come over here to farmer Joe's tomatoes and make a decision based on the nutrient density and the quality of that those tomatoes how comfortable are you as a farmer right now continuing to destroy the system? So I look forward to that. You know, and I always say to people, I can remember my grandfather um, used to grow a garden. And I, I'll never forget walking out in that garden and eating the cherry tomatoes. They, they, they always tasted so much better than the ones that came from the grocery store. Actually, I never ate tomatoes from the grocery store. So I think a lot of people can relate to it when you think about growing your own tomatoes and the, sh the sheer flavor profile of those tomatoes is exponentially greater than the tomatoes you go to the grocery store and pick up. And that's your body, that's your flavor feedback mechanism in your body telling you, hey, there are more nutrients in the tomatoes from the garden than there are at the grocery store. And that's what we've done with food plots. And that's why I can sit back and sort of think about all this and say, you know what, we don't have the data yet, Let's let the data chasers eventually get it. But I buy into this 110%. If, if my plants have a greater nutrient density than your plants, I'm going to attract more deer. And this is what we're seeing on properties that have gone all in, full bore 110%, no-till, diversity, um, uh, complex rotations. So, you know, I think when we start to look at it that way and say, you know, instead of producing great yield, or the reason those tomatoes at the grocery store taste like water, they're bland. I'm eating them down here in Florida because I don't have a great source for them locally. Farmer markets are closed. And, you know, uh, the reason that they are so bland is because farming, modern farm, modern ag, feels like they need to produce yield over more nutrient-dense foods. So while they're pumping out a pile of you know, cherry tomatoes, they've lost sight of the quality. So I think we need to get back to, to the quality and, it, and really observing how nature farms.
Man, you are taking me back to my college days with organic chem and food science and supply, and I'm loving it and hating it at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think I had five or six organic chemistry classes, hated every single one of them, failed the first one. Actually, I failed basic chemistry, general chemistry the first time. I couldn't understand the professor. He was uh, from another country, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I get it. And 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 I also like to I like tell people I know they like to shut off when the science starts to come out, but truthfully I've watched you know my kids in fourth fifth grade they learned really everything we need to know, and you know when you watch carbonomics Keith Burns um, from Green Cover Seed on YouTube, <laughs> you know he, he breaks it down into to the basic um, you know you can you can even leave C six H twelve O six because people get lost in that but you have water you have sun. And things happen, right? And chlorophyll, thank God. If we didn't have chlorophyll, we wouldn't have white-tailed deer. So I want to start getting into the actual steps. Someone wants to start this shift towards regenerative agriculture. How do, what do they do in place of the disking and the tilling and planting what, and using the herbicides? What are the steps that they need to take? Yeah, so that's a good question. And, and again, it's quite uh, voluminous in response. You know, obviously, like I said, everybody has a, a different set of tools at their uh, disposal. So, you know, it, I, I understand that drills are difficult to get. But, you know, when I started, I bought my farm and um, still hadn't paid it off yet. Early on, I, I, I rented. I got together with a local Pheasants Forever chapter and they had a drill. Um, and I rented it for a, a minimal cost. And there's so many conservation districts and folks who are willing to rent, rent a drill. Um, <coughs> excuse me. In, in the absence of a no-till drill, you know, you can use the frost, obviously the freeze thaw, the um, frost seeding applications to get uh, seeds in the ground. You know, traditionally we always felt, including myself, that the clovers really are the, uh, the most efficient at, at hard seeded clovers at doing that but we've we found that even spring reload when frost seeded um, does pretty well so you know i think i would strive and this this sort of um plays on my point that when you go to the job site you've got to bring the right tools you, you really have to I'm, I'm sorry to say you know when when i incorporated roller crimping into into my management um i remember saying to my buddy who was filming me um, you know, the only way to make this any better is to, to convince this roller crimper to poop. It, it, re- it It's designed to simulate, you know, large herbivores walking across the landscape, mashing down that, that soil armor. So if, if again, if, if I were to start, regardless of what tools I have, I would let the head trash go of, you know what, I don't have a $30,000 drill. Okay, then you need to think you need to equate that $30,000 to the power of thinking and think $30,000 worth. I mean, I've seen guys drive Honda Civics through fields um, to, to not necessarily crimp, but to lay down, you know, massive amounts of, of plant residue. So I would follow those principles. I would look up those, those principles. Um, you know, I was, I was a part of a green cover seed owned by Keith and Brian Burns is, is who I've worked with over the years. They, you know, I, I serve as the extension of their sort of their food plot. 
Um, they don't work small, small bag. They, they send truckloads and they send seed by the truckloads to large farmers and ranchers. And you know, I've been fortunate to be a part of their soil health resource guide. And, and I personally believe that um, this thing, it, it, it serves as the Bible, I think, to, to soil health um, you know, principles and, and, and practices. So, you know, you can actually um, email Carly, C-A-R-L-I, at greencoverseed.com and, and give her your address and the number of copies you want, and she'll mail you a copy. Um, but this soil health resource guide, I, I actually wrote a, an article in it called Regenerative Wildlife Ecology. It, it covers so many of these principles, and we were pretty excited. They uh, had a little contest um, with a financial reward uh, for uh, the photo shot. And uh, one of our growers um, sent in a picture of fall reload and it made the cover. So pretty excited about that. But I, I would read, 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 and obviously as much as you can find online. But this Soil Health Resource Guide has has some of the, the greatest. It perhaps goes downhill when they included me in it. But um, it's just packed with information on how to get these these principles and practice, you know, I suppose. So I'd start there. But again, I think going back to the, the beginning of our conversation, uh, it, it's, it's a mind shift, right? It's okay, I'm willing to work through this. You know, the why is I want to get rid of these, these synthetic, you know, spoon feeding synthetic fertilizer is no fun. I've been there. I mean, I, the, the largest, you know, I only, I had a hundred, well, my PA farms, a hundred acres. Um, the largest expense to to managing that property was always my fertilizer line item. And eliminating that, taking that to zero, has really been fantastic. And a lot of guys say, well, how can I afford a, you know, two or three or $4,000 roller crimper? We're making them for the ATVs now. Much more affordable. They do the same job. Um, it won't take long for most food plotters to save enough money in fertilizer alone um you know to to purchase a roller crimper so uh i I would follow the principles and i would try to put them into your context um you know i started a a closed facebook group called regenerative wildlife agriculture and of course there's some of the big guys posting you know the big sexy equipment in there and then there's some other guys who are um you know sort of playing around with um, using their heads instead of expensive tools and machinery. And they're, they are seeing tremendous advancements in soil health. And sometimes you would look at them. Uh, a good friend of mine, Tim Coker, gets K-O-C-H-E-R. If you follow him, he'll do stuff that you, know, you wouldn't know the difference between his and, and my farm. And he doesn't, he's not using uh, tractors and, and crimpers. He's just sort of using his head. So uh, yeah, I think if you follow those principles and you ask yourself, am I practicing biomimicry? Am I, am I farming in nature's image? Um, there's just no need for, for chemical herbicides and, um, you know, all the pesticides for that matter. You know, we're, we're planting pollinator strips. I think getting pollinator strips in there with diversity. Um, I had a, had a gentleman who loves his bees plant our pollinator preserve and when we first developed it it's a perennial um, product and he was just dying to know how many different species were in it and I told him I really don't know because we put so many 
packaged packages together to make one product. And we counted over, I think it was 59 different species that benefit beneficial insects and pollinators. And they don't have to, you know, there's a fallacy out there that they have to flower. Obviously, we all think of, you know, the wildflowers and we think of uh, sunflowers. Well, beneficial insects benefit from species that do not flower, like plantain and chicory, for instance. You know, I planted some pollinator strips, um, pollinator preserve from, from my company along the driveway just for people to see as they come in. And it blew my mind in a high human activity area all summer long. How many deer would struggle to get across some of the neighborhood roads and feed right along the driveway, including mature bucks and does with fawns? And when I finally put a utilization cage up, I, I didn't plan it for deer, so I didn't have a, an exclusion cage or utilization cage in it. Um, just being inquisitive, I threw one up, and what they were hammering was the chicory and the plantain. And you know, both of those products are uh, deworm natural dewormers in, in whitetails. So I don't want to get going too long there, but uh, <laughs> I hope I answered your question. I'm really happy that you mentioned the cost between traditional food plotting versus this regenerative ag. I mean, that is one of the things that really sealed the deal for me on our property to go the route of regenerative ag this year was that we were just in the two acres total that we were planting. You know, we were spending anywhere between 500 and $1,500 in fertilizer and lime mm -hmm. and, and, you know, to be able to not have to purchase those. And I, I understand that there's going to be some struggle years in the beginning until we rebuild that soil health that, that we sure. destroyed. But sure. once we get past that point and to have, quality food in the food plots without spending that money on fertilizer and pesticides and herbicides. Um, I mean, really, y you can't get any better than that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, I, I tell people, you don't have to go all in. Um, you know, we, we did after contemplating this, this whole idea. And then obviously it was easy for me with a biology and ecology background, but I tell people, put one plot in and, and apply these principles. Here's a great take home for, you know, we have, I think it's 90 or hundred year old data. Um, it's called the Morrow plots and it's, it's research that's been done for a very, very long time. But if you were just to take your nitrogen application, which by the way, nitrogen is, is the most expensive to your wallet. And it's also extremely destructive to our ecosystem and if you don't believe that take a trip to the gulf of new mexico and uh you know look at the dead zone there but if you were to cut your nitrogen application in half you're not going to notice a difference at all never now that's most food plots right and that's that's even included in and in, you know if you're a farmer and you're growing wheat or you're growing corn 50 roughly 40 to 50 percent of the nitrogen is never utilized by the plant so this leads this is some of the early research that made a lot of us think to ourselves okay well then where's the rest of it coming from well the rest of it's coming from the soil there, there's there's organic nitrogen in the soil that's being utilized by plants and when you think 
you think of the fact that there's 32,000 tons, I know you've probably heard this before, but of, of atmospheric nitrogen floating above every acre of food plot. So, you know, going back to my comment about, you know, 97% of, of a plant <laughs> um, being free, that's a lot of free nitrogen fertilizer floating on top of that food plot. So if you incorporate legumes and suck some of that into your food plot, um, that's a great thing. But uh, yeah, you know, you hit a lot of good points there and I'd, I'd be happy to expand on, on any of them. I don't want to get rambling too much, but. Well, let's sort of shift gears a little bit and revert back to you were talking about brassicas, you know, again, hitting that too much of one thing is no longer a good thing. So sure. uh, brassicas aren't really benefiting the, the soil health in a year round sense. So what kind of seed mixes are we planting or should we be planting and how often should we be planting because I, I feel like most food plotters really um, you know they probably do some frost seeding in the early spring for that chicory and clover and then they let it go all summer and then they spray and they're going to plant a brassica mix so exactly yeah maybe, so maybe planting twice a year are we should we be playing more often I'm assuming we don't want that that bare soil so we have to plant yeah. different things and probably more often that's that's a great point and, and a, some very good useful information for your listeners. So let me let me hit two points there. First and foremost, um, brassicas are are an awesome plant, and you know you can plant brassicas and we plant brassicas spring, summer, and fall all year long because again it's one of the major plant functional groups and it does its, it it does a certain you know it might be the tight end of of the eleven. So brassicas themselves, straight brassicas. They do not encourage or support our buscular mycorrhizal fungi. AMF are so important in the soil ecosystem. It's kind of like our highways. How effective or efficient would we be right now under COVID-19 in supplying toilet paper, uh, milk, eggs, butter, whatever, you know, steak, you name it, to the citizens of our country if we didn't have any of our interstates? It, it, it would cut off our logistics. To, to the point that it would strangle us, we would all starve or be shooting, we'd have to shoot wildlife, catch fish, whatever. So our muscular mycorrhizal fungi are, are like the network throughout the soil. They cycle nutrients, they move water from one plant to another. Um, brassicas do not, they're, they're what we call non-mycorrhizal. So they actually, in and of themselves in a monoculture, they degrade the soil health. So, you know, a lot, a lot of the listeners, if hopefully they're still listening, um, they may, they may recall planting brassicas early on. And, um, you know, I can remember in Mississippi when I was down there and Mossy Oak first really got heavy into using them in food plots. Um, you know, we, we had a, a club where we planted them and the deer didn't touch them, you know, and, and of course I'm a Yankee in Mississippi and they're, they're like, wow, these, these things are for Yankees. It doesn't get cold enough down here for brassicas to be attractive, but straight brassicas degrade the soil health period. So, you know, one of my favorite um, initial food plot products is a product that I call um, fall fuel and clients purchased and utilized fall fuel and absolutely loved it. 
it killed plenty of deer. And it wasn't something special that I put together. It was just extremely attractive, as all the listeners know. But the problem is after a couple of years of brassicas, and they could be two, hell, it could be one, it could be four or five, depending on the situation of your soil when you started. And, and of course, your other management actions outside of the brassica period, um, you start to see a decline. And I remember one client saying, Jay, these brassicas, when we first started planting them, man, they were thigh high, knee high. Now we can barely get them up to our ankles. And it's not deer consumption. There's a utilization cage in the field. Trail cam pictures showing zero deer eating them all, you know, from August until basically October, November. Um, and, and that's why, because you slowly degrade the system. So that was one of the reasons that we developed this idea behind the reload series is it's a system that thinks ahead for you, if you will. So when you mentioned that the average food plotter probably gets something going in the spring and then he, he, you know, he's ready for that fall, you know, whether it's July or August or September, depending on your geographic location, you know, we're still doing that. But let me, you know, to me, the start occurs in the fall, right? Most of us are thinking about killing deer in the fall. I'm thinking about the following season. So a lot of this is we get behind the eight ball because we're not planning ahead. And it's time we start to plan ahead so we can get away from using chemicals, um, you know, and, and all the synthetics. So, you know, with spring reload, I'll, I'll just start in the spring because that's when most, you know, <laughs> I like to think in the fall, but most of my clients and, and most folks who plant food plots think in the spring. That makes sense. So we start in the spring as early as we can. Now, I mean, we, we are taking risks like farmers. Um, you know, here we are. I think I've been planted uh, in Pennsylvania. Oh, geez. Uh, thanks to my buddy, Tim. He planted probably two, three weeks ago already. Sounds crazy, I know. But you know what? We, we took a little bit of risk. It's growing. Um, when, when the soil temperatures hit the mid-40s and rising, and of course, they cycle up and down with, with the ambient temperatures. But once you get to that point, you make a gut decision. That's the fun part of being a farmer that really doesn't lose, you know, at the end of the year, like, like true farmers do. Um, we get it in the ground early. And that allows us to get ahead of, I'll use the word weeds, right? The weeds are engineered. Again, they're the ambulance workers. They get going. They throw deep tap roots. They pull up nutrients from, from depths way beyond those which are... Uh, domestic crops can reach. So if we get ahead of these species, you know, you mentioned the the, the dirty plots, or I, I brought that terminology up. If we get ahead of them, maybe our plots won't be as dirty. The other factor with with spring reload is there's 17 different species and varieties. So you're throwing the major plant functional groups, and you don't have to buy spring reload. You know, I'm not. This isn't a commercial. But we developed those because most guys didn't want to constantly think about the carbon-nitrogen ratio. We wanted to get two or three years under our belt with a, with a extremely diverse biological primer cocktail type blend. And then later hit the, hit the plots with perennials and maybe the more destructive um, dominant brassica plots so again those species were included not just because they sound sexy but because they work together like you know like a team um 
in a kind complementary manner. And, you know, then we actually fall right into summer reload, which is going to be your warm season annual. So you'll see sun hemp, you will still see soybeans, cowpeas, uh, millet, sorghum, those sorts of things. But you'll also still see your other functional groups because again, they're working together in a symbiotic relationship. So you'll still see brassicas in the spring and fall reload. You know, you'll see the chick, the forbs like chicory and plantain. You'll see the grasses and cereals. Um, you know, obviously all the cereals that you can, you can imagine this, this triticale and barley and oats, and those sorts of things. And then, uh, and of course, everybody's kind of waiting. You will most definitely see uh, legumes. So, you know, then when you roll in the fall, so in, in most cover crops, when I started working with green cover seed the, and trying to blend this soil health thing with still attracting and killing deer, when I, when I ran this by a lot of my clients of, you know, 12, 15 years, they said to me, listen, Jay, I'm, I'm game, man. I'll buy whatever you want me to buy. I want healthy soils. I want to hand down soils that infiltrate water and store water to my kids, not soils that slowly erode and extract the, the, you know, basically the, the value from my land. But here's the deal, man. We want to kill deer. We want to attract turkeys and deer and other game species and, and, and still have something to hunt, right? So fall reload was me taking fall fuel and the spring reload and all of these concepts related to species complementariness, um, biological primers, quorum sensing, and we said, okay, let's start putting in the major functional groups for specific reasons. And the folks at Green Cover, as good as they are in the agricultural world, would throw something and say, well, what about this? And I would say, well, you know what? I'd like to maybe target something a little bit more deer friendly or, you know, or whatever resource concern. And ultimately, we massaged it and worked it out to, to you know, to, to develop the reload series. So fall reload has a much lower percentage of, I shouldn't say much, it has a lower percentage of brassicas than the conventional fall planted kill plots or hunting plots, if you will. But what you gain from that is a higher percentage of the cereals and the, the biennial species that will come back the following spring. So we're kind of thinking ahead for you one of the biggest downfalls that most food plotters face is they're always behind the eight ball. They're never thinking ahead. So whereas the fall fuel, the original fall fuel blend of only brassicas took us into late winter, early spring with soils that you could bounce a basketball on. <laughs> they were heavily compact. They were naked. They were starving. And those are the soils I rolled my, my bad boy buggy out into that year when I decided to change my mindset. Now we've got species mixed in there at certain percentages that we've played around with to make sure that there's a living root in the soil year round. And again, we're going back to those original principles to make sure that we hit the diversity and we're getting ahead of those weed species that are just doing their job, man. I mean, those weed species are, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have an earth to stand on. Um, but we're able to mimic. Again, biomimicry, we're able to select species 
perhaps more domestic species like hairy vetch, which has been put down a tremendous amount in uh, in the wildlife world. Ryegrass is another fantastic plant that people are just don't understand and they're missing the boat on in its own application. Um, so, so by getting ahead of nature with a fall planted, you know, you're sitting there hunt, maybe bow hunting over it. But what you don't realize is the cereal rye and the hairy vetch and some of the other cold tolerant species are going to be root active when it hits minus 10 and minus 20 degrees. And unlike you, when soil temps start to warm up late winter, early spring, those plants are getting to work. I can't tell you how many guys say to me, well, I plant in the spring when, when turkey season opens, you know, we usually go up to the camp and we shoot some turkeys, we drink some beer. And then, you know, Sunday, uh, we go ahead and start our plots. Well, nature doesn't work on a calendar year and it certainly doesn't obey the game hunt, you know, hunting season dates. So, uh, you know, I guess in answering your question, it, it, it immediately drove me to why we created spring reload, summer reload, and fall reload, because I spent two or three years beating my head off the wall trying to convince guys to think ahead and manipulate their blends a little bit. Now, one thing we learned is we can actually go a little bit heavier on the brassicas than we once thought, as long as we have uh, Bio biology promoting mycorrhizal fungi promoting species in there flax and, and some other species um, so we have just literally this week revamped the old original fall fuel we're calling it fall fuel reloaded um, to you know once we get into two or three years of using the reload series i firmly believe we can set the table up for a fantastic hunting season by putting in a fall brassica, I don't want to call it dominant, but maybe heavily tilted towards the brassicas, which let's face it, kill a lot of deer, without losing or taking a lot of steps backwards in soil health. And you know that, that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to blend soil health principles because again, healthy soils promote healthy everything. And we're trying to blend that with still being able to observe or harvest animals. That is You didn't fall asleep on me. No, that is I'm just I'm I'm trying to my best to absorb as much and write down <laughs> as much information as I can. Um I mean, Sorry. As, there, as there, no you know, this, this I'm just shooting from the hip here, but uh, you know, there, there's so much to this and it's it's so exciting. I've I've never been I mean in this article in the Soil Health Resource Guide I wrote, I've never been so optimistic and excited about wildlife management than than I you know than now. No, it's like I've said multiple times already, once you start reading and, and looking into this concept it's a rabbit hole and there's just so much information um that it's there's there's a lot to it there's <laughs> there's so much to it that we there's you no know, way we can get to it get to all there is there really is but i don't want to discourage people away from from trying it at a very small scale and again grab the soil health resource guide they they printed forty thousand copies i think in four different languages 
Um, so, so they're, they're ready for the, uh, to send them out in volume, but yeah, you're right. There's a lot to it. But at the same time, you know, the neat thing is I've seen dramatic increases in soil organic matter, which really isn't even the most important, um, in the index to soil health, but, you know, we've seen the biology explode. We've completely changed. Well, I should say we, my good friend, Dr. Rick Haney and his wife, Liz, Dr. Liz Haney, they've completely changed the way that we look at soil testing. Soil testing conventionally, it's almost embarrassing to think that all of us have, you know, the, the conventional soil test that you send out. I know I told you I wanted to touch on soil testing and um, I don't know how we are on time, but yeah, so, no, so I, I'm glad you brought that up. That was literally going to be my next question is that, I mean, we've been indoctrinated with food plots that the first step you take is you test your soil, right? Sure, um, sure. And those tests are relatively cheap, $10, $20, depending on what you go with, um, you know, whether it's Mossy Oak or a county extension. Um, but there's more to it than just finding out what the nitrogen content is and that kind of thing. So please delve into the <laughs> oh boy <laughs> well um and I've, I've been on a lot of these lately and and webinars my, i'm losing my voice so i'm chugging down water but uh yeah you know the the conventional soil test uh most of them are, are run by based on the malik um, process so that when i say conventional those that that's what i'm picking on they they've looked at they or they they looked at the system and i did these these soil tests in college by the way and they, they it was always it always seemed kind of goofy that we're putting gloves on up to our elbows like we're you know um checking out a cow or whatever <laughs> um you know when they look at the system as a chemical system they miss the boat 110% because it is not a chemical. Chemistry is most certainly involved or biochemistry, but the system is one of biology. So Dr. Rick Haney, uh, who, who has become a very good friend of mine, he's, he's helped me an unbelievable amount. He has done, he works for the USDA in Texas, and he did a, a tremendous amount of research and said, wait a minute, we are looking at this all wrong. And actually, the Morrow research, the Morrow plots, were I think were some of the initial um, data that he sort of looked at and said, "This is crazy. Fifty percent of the fertilizer that that you know we're throwing in is is getting wasted, regardless of the pH." Everybody likes to talk about the pH, which, hey, by the way, the plants got that too. They've got that part figured out. Funny how they do that. So Rick said, "You know what? The conventional chemistry soil." people look at that they'll use extractants you know they take the soil and they beat the hell out of it a while they they extract it with these caustic acids and i won't even talk about the big names that they use the ironic part is you can't pour this acid on you you can't drink it you can't get it in your eyes you can't you don't even want to get it on your skin so if that's the case why in the world would we want to dump it on the soil biology and in the soil to extract what we think is the available nutrients. So Rick said, I'm actually going to biomimic 
the natural compounds that plants exude. So plants in the rhizosphere, which is nothing, picture the root of a plant. The area around the root is the rhizosphere. So it's really cool. The, the complex interactions that go on around those rhizos, that rhizosphere between the plant and the, the biology is what drives the entire system. So those plants exude certain compounds and, and, and acids and um, carbon and, and the biology consume them. So that attracts the biology to them. So Rick said, I'm gonna mimic three of those acids that the plants give off to attract these nutrients. That's a lot more accurate than using some crazy acid that all of us are afraid to touch. And then by the way, I'm also gonna use water because it rains water to extract all of these nutrients. So long story short, Rick employed his own system of biomimicry, and he has had, in my opinion, the largest impact on the agricultural industry since World War II, positive impact. There's no one who will save farmers more in the future than Rick Haney. Now, I know Rick really well. He claims to be, um, you know, some dumb redneck, and I will agree that his wife helps him a tremendous amount. But Rick has he has shaped the way that we look at this thing and molded it. It's it's unreal. So again, Rick looks at the biological indicators in the soil and eventually comes up with this soil health calculation, which is really kind of cool to see. Now, currently, the lab, since it's a, it's, it is a government-funded lab, they shut the lab down for the time being due to the COVID-19, which is a shame and it's a bummer. It's bad timing, but eventually. Um, when they reopen, the, the, the soil health, the, the Haney soil health test is, is incredible. And again, it, it's really just a way of looking at the soil as the biological and ecological environment that it is, as opposed to some chemistry kit that we learned in the labs at college. Yeah, it's just like anything else. You're going to get what you pay for. So the results that you get from a cheap pH and basic chemistry soil test are, are going to be just that. But right, when you right. when you really look into the full soil health, uh, you're going to be given a whole lot more information, which will help. You are. And, you know, Rick and I laugh all the time. We say nobody looks at those data on the conventional tests. And I've had guys get their soil, their, their handy health test back and we sell them. Um, I sell the, the whole analysis of it and work with Rick and, and interpret the data. And I've spent countless hours both, you know, sitting at a bar and at conferences and over the phone talking to Rick. It absolutely blows my mind how having soil health data about your current situation allows you to steer that. So it, it Without it, I we wouldn't have been able to do what we do. There are farmers saving two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year. Large scale farmers saving enough to buy new equipment or finally go on a vacation. You know, and and to me, the two major drivers on the soil health um, test from Rick are the the water extractable organic carbon, so the carbon, and then the CO two burst. I've been working with Rick on the CO two burst because. You know, if you think about it, all of us breathe oxygen. Any, any living thing breathes oxygen and then puts off CO2. So 
if you were to stick 20 kids or 20 adults in a, in a classroom, you stick a, a CO2, you know, a monitor in there and you get a reading, you can sort of guess how many human beings there are in that room. Rick does the same thing with extremely expensive equipment that most labs cannot even finance. He, he looks at the soil, he takes your soil, he dries it down, he rewets it, the biology gets super active and he comes up with a CO2 burst reading. And to me, knowing that biology drives the system, biology will go get those nutrients and supply them to your plants so you don't have to add it to it, you know, in a spoon-fed mechanism in a bag. Um, it, that, that, just, that should blow everyone's mind. And why it hasn't gone mainstream yet is, is so far beyond me. I think it's because people don't understand it. But again, if, you know, if you look at conventional tests, people don't know what they're looking at. I can't tell you how many emails I get from a guy who says, what does this mean? You know, my soil organic matter is 2.1, um, you know, but my pH, all they look at is soil organic matter pH and where the line graph, you know, are they good, optimum, you know, above average or whatever, uh, you know. So the soil, real quick definitions of soil organic matter is extremely important. And you hear all these fancy definitions from people. It's it, the best way to look at soil organic matter is it's the house for the biology to live in. The carbon is the food for the biology. So you could have a really big house and no food or vice versa. So to me, the house is important for a lot of phys physical reasons. Or soil organic matter is not living. Right, it's typically dead, dying, decaying. There's a living component, but I'm more interested in the carbon feeding the soil microbes. And those two numbers, when you track them, that's our report card. So, you know, all of these things that I'm talking about with the reload series, that's not just um, opinion. We have taken, Rick did this actually, you know, tillage, soil disturbance. Um, can destroy. You know, I, I always say when I see somebody plowing, it's it's a bad day for an earthworm, or it's a bad day for a nematode. Um, you know, you, you you destroy an awful awful amount, uh, high amount of biology when you till, disc, any any type of physical soil disturbance. Rick did that himself on the research plots in Texas, and then he went back and planted. Um, a product like spring reload with high super high diversity and the biology rebound was absolutely amazing right i mean nature being self-healing we know this but the biology came back pretty quick so that was super good news for me because so many guys say hey i need to get a start do you mind if i do a light disking before i put this in the ground because i just spent a fair amount of money and I want to have a decent stand that actually looks somewhat like a, you know, a diverse polyculture spring reload. So, you know, that, that's all good, good news for us. But, um, you know, I still occasionally will get a conventional test because I like to see the organic matter content. Um, you know, I don't think every five years, I think that would probably be suitable. Now I'm doing a lot of research on my place. So we, we pretty much get them every year just to, to look for fluctuations in certain things. But, you know, there, there's zero calibrations in those conventional soil tests. A lot of those, those more conventional soil scientists 
still maintain that they're calibrated, but there's there's no calibration in those. And if you if you want to argue with me, look at the the Morrow data showing all the the, the fact that if 50% is wasted and never used by the plant, where's it getting the rest? Of, where's it getting the other 50%? It's getting it from the biology. That's where it's getting it. But Jason, we're starting to run up to the end here. So I want you to take a second and tell everyone where they can find more information about you, about your consulting, um, the, the seed and the different mixes that you're selling. Yeah, sure. You know, um, I, I started, I guess, almost 20 years ago now as a consultant. So my company is Drop Time Wildlife Consulting. And then after consulting with some of the food plot companies for so many years, I became frustrated with their lack of attention to some of these details and started the Drop Time Seed Company. And, you know, I really initially did it just to supply seed to my clients because they were frustrated and looking for something else. Um, so, you know, through both of those avenues, I could be found and contacted, both Drop Time Wildlife Consulting, um, Drop Time Seed Company, which is droptimeseed.com. Uh, my my email, you know, I, I I try to respond to emails, voicemails, um, and that sort of thing. It has gotten you know more and more difficult. It's not because I don't think you're important, but I try to respond to as many as I can. Um, but uh, you know, my email is Jason at droptineseed.com, and then like everybody else, I suppose I get on Facebook from time to time. Um, both of those companies have various um, Facebook uh, presence. And then, like I said, the regenerative wildlife agriculture, uh, we call it RWA. Closed group is kind of fun because we share some of these, these more advanced um, ideas and practices on there. So that would, that would be the best place to find me. Well, awesome. Thank you for coming on. Uh, this is a lot of information, but a lot of, really great information that I really hope the listeners decide to start looking into this on their own uh, to just sort of take a little bit more of a role in being a part of nature. Cause that's really what we're trying to do. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I, you know, I just want to thank you and uh, for, for giving me the platform to, to get this out there. You know, I, I feel like I've spent 20 years consulting and, this this has really been um, rewarding to to spread the the word on this and and have a positive impact on a an ecosystem and an ecology that has greatly supported me and then of course I want to recognize the fact you know I, your, your podcast is 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 a great one I mean it it hits a niche that so many podcasts do not hit and I really appreciate your approach and your podcast so great great work and congratulations on that. Thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Uh, Jason, again, thank you for coming on and um, hope to talk to you sometime soon. That sounds good. I look forward to it. Have a great day. Ooh, that was a long one, huh? Listen, good information may seem overwhelming. I get it. Uh, this is something that I plan on implementing this year, the first year. I understand that it's going to take a couple years to really get that soil health and all the organisms back to where they need to be. 
but just as Jason said, it's a philosophy shift. And the reason, personally, I'm making this shift is because hunters like to tout their hunting and the and the meat that is sourced as highly organic and you know so clean compared to meat that you can buy in a grocery store and i think that is true however we can take it another step further by not using herbicides by not using the artificial fertilizers and that's really what it's coming down to for me personally on our family property we want to try to make a positive impact on the property, but we want to do it not at the detriment of other things, right? Like soil health and those organisms. So we're going to try to give this a shot. We understand that it's a, a long process to really get established, but we think it's possible. And if we really want to make a, a big difference, it's what I and we we need to do. So you will hear me talk about from time to time. Uh, I'll make sure to report back and let you know how it's going. Don't be overwhelmed with the start. All right. Uh, when we start this, it seems, you know, you start getting all this information, it seems very overwhelming. As someone who's looked very into it, it's very simple. Plant a diverse species. Don't use herbicides really limit or don't use synthetic fertilizers. Just by doing that, you are going to be helping the overall ecosystem in that area. Next week, join us back again. I have another good habitat management podcast for you. But until then, do your best to stay sane, stay healthy, and if you can get outside, stay wild. Thank mm-hmm. you.